0: The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Um, as I record this, uh, we just received news um, uh, from the previous evening that uh, one of the great monsters of our, uh, the modern era, uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, uh, has died. Uh now this is obviously anyone who's listening to this podcast will have already read a great deal about it. Um I'm hoping that you read a, a lot of it in the Nation magazine, uh the sponsor of this podcast because we have uh several excellent pieces uh particularly from the historian uh Greg uh, Grandin. Um the uh, there's so much to say about Kissinger, uh but also, you know, uh much to say about the state of the world. Uh and to address both Uh, I'm very happy to have on um, a friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Matt Duss, uh, who's a senior uh, uh, figure at the uh, Centre for International Policy. And um, he recently wrote a very interesting piece in Foreign Affairs um, with his colleague Nancy O'Kale about uh, the sort of uh, war in Gaza and uh, also how this sort of ceasefire that uh, is sort of... uh, um, Uh, currently uh, in place as we're recording. Um, how that can be built on to provide an alternative model to the you know sort of, uh, horrific um, war and violence that we 're seeing uh so w- we 'll take up both topics but I want to start with uh, sort of um uh, Kissinger because Matt had written a very i uh, um interesting piece uh, uh recently um prior to Kissinger's death um uh, bringing out an aspect of kissinger's career uh which um is not much discussed. And it has to be said about Kissinger, you know, like we can't, uh, uh, one of the interesting things about him is that one is always finding out, like, um, uh, new atrocities that he was involved with. Uh, And, uh, like, the archivists are having, like, a sort of field day over Mm -hmm. the last uh, decades of, like, you know, there's, there's stuff that he did with, like, um, Spain and Morocco in North Africa that I had never heard about that I just found out <laughs> so, so, there's so much to say about Kissinger but I, but I think the um, Matt's piece about um, uh, Kissinger and buckraking I think uh, was very interesting and uh, I want to um, see uh, what he has to say about that
1: yeah um, no but first as you said um, even uh, after the passing of such an artist as Kissinger there will be new material that the uh, <laughs> will continue to be released as, as right. more and more is, is unearthed and shared um, but yeah, the piece I wrote it was uh, for the New Republic back in in early June, amid as I'm sure you, you and your listeners remember this, you know the just like I don't know what to call it the 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 massive celebration and observance the great national holiday of Henry Kissinger's hundredth birthday, um, which was is just wild. I mean, how many cakes does one man really need? Was a question I, I kept coming back to. But, um, you know, it also was an occasion as ugly um, and really, you know, as revolting as the kind of establishment elite encomia for him was. I think it also was occasion for the beginning of what I think we are seeing now in the wake of his death is just a much more unvarnished take. A real, I mean, I think there's I, I'm gratified to see as many, you know, really taking a clear, cold look at his legacy, which is one of enormous mass murder um, and, and, and coups and, and and undermining of democracy, um, and that is kind of where my piece focused. Um, as I note, um, this it doesn't really compare to the millions of deaths uh, for which he is uh, responsible. But understanding, you know, what he did post government, how he kind of, you know, was really the first to parlay his his you know closeness to power and his celebrity into massive wealth. Um, in terms of continuing to be an unofficial and sometimes official advisor to various secretaries of state and various administrations while also having you know global mega corporations and foreign governments as clients um which is which is really incredible when you think about it
0: yeah, no, no, I mean, he's a real, a real pioneer in that. Uh, and it's something that we've seen much more and more. Um, I, I noticed that uh, Tony Blair had uh, uh, d- issued a statement like sort of um, praising Kissinger and uh, how much he owed to Kissinger. And uh, oh, yes. I couldn't help but thinking that like, <laughs> Tony right. Blair like is exactly following Kissinger's model in Precising. the sense of uh, uh, both presiding over disastrous foreign policy, right. uh, but then afterwards uh, basically cashing out With the sort of institute which uh, uh, that he runs, where he has like all sorts of ties with Middle Eastern autocrats. I mean, like it is the same basic thing. Um, And so, so yeah. I mean, when we think of Kissinger's legacy, it shouldn't just be you know the horrific stuff he did while in public office. Like he actually Mm -hmm. created a model for something um, more corrupt. And I'll just tell a story because I'm in uh, working on a piece about um, uh, Marty Pretz. You mentioned the New Republic, the former. Publisher of The New Republic for many years, Uh, and who was um, in his autobiography talks quite warmly about uh, Henry Kissinger. Although he says, uh, you know, like it's true that uh, you know he was responsible for the uh, death of like a quarter of the population of Cambodia, but you know he had he had his good side too. Um, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's not bicker and argue over who killed who. That's right. That's right.
0: But but one of the things that uh, so while I was researching this piece on Peretz, um, I came across this uh, very interesting um uh, story um involving uh the new republic and kissinger um which is that in the time of the uh, first um, iraq war um in the early 1990s uh the new republic had published a very good investigative piece by joe connison um mm. a really fine uh reporter yep. and it's about kissinger associates and mm. it was about um the um uh, ties between the Kissinger Associates and Saddam Hussein, uh, because there was someone from the Kissinger Associates mm-hmm. who went over yep. to um, Iraq uh, under Saddam Hussein when a lot of business uh, people were there, and um, it, it's very opaque as to what he was actually doing there. But he was like uh, very much in the company of Saddam Hussein, and um, uh, there were uh, business interests that were very interested in um, uh, making uh, deals, including arms deals, with Saddam Hussein that were uh, part of this trip. Um, so, I mean, that's a very, uh, it was a very good investigative piece. Uh, Kissinger wrote in a very angry letter, which the new Republic, um, uh, published and the new Republic, um, published this very curious editor's note saying that, uh, you know, the piece is not meant to reflect on uh, Dr. Kissinger. Uh, it was just like reporting the facts of this particular case, which is yeah. like, uh, you know, if you're a, re- a reporter, Uh, That might not be what you want to hear, but it it goes a bit further than that. Um, A little while afterwards, um, 60 Minutes took up uh, this and did a very long report. I think one of the longest episodes of 60 Minutes ever about Mm. Kissinger Associates and all its ties with... uh, various foreign autocrats and while they were working on the piece um, uh, they had contacted uh, Connison and also the New Republic because they wanted to quote from the piece and they got in this letter from uh, Marty Peretz uh, saying uh, basically putting down the piece like saying like you know we didn't do editorial due diligence for that Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, at that point um, um, uh, uh, Mike Wallace uh, you know had called up Uh, Or they were in touch with uh, the New Republic uh, and Peretz and saying like, you know, like we're going to quote this letter uh, and um, it doesn't quite make you look good, uh, you know, like disavowing your own writer. And then there was a follow up letter from Peretz's lawyer saying, you know, like um, uh, uh, basically begging 60 minutes not to quote from the first letter from Peretz, uh, which is obviously an embarrassment. Yeah, Uh, I would say it realizes an embarrassment. Uh, And, and, you know, 60 Minutes to their Credit uh, quoted both letters as well as having Joe Connison on um, uh, because uh, his original reporting held up. So
1: everybody Uh, won there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I I think that story is a um, a remarkable example of something um, uh, that is also very true about Kissinger, which is that he had this network of elite accomplices, um, especially in the world of journalism um uh and the corporate um uh the corporate world as well as in public service. Uh and and they often went along with him because um they shared uh both his interests and his values. Um and so so I think that is that too is part of Kissinger's legacy.
1: Quite right. And you know I'm not the first person to observe this. I, I'm trying to remember where I first read it, but like one of part of Kissinger's real genius was for flattery. <laughs> it was for you know flattering The, you know, assumptions of elites about themselves, um, you know, their need to be to be kind of in the know, to be close to power and using that for his own for his own influence, but also protecting, you know, his reputation. And I think that's a great example. It might not have worked out exactly in that way. But overall, um, you know, I think you just look again a few months ago during his 100th birthday, um, all, all of the praise he was receiving, all the praise he'll receive over the next few days really goes to that success. Um, but I also think, you know, that story you noted, one of the reasons it might be so unfamiliar is because what, he's, what he started out doing is no longer seen as scandalous. I mean, this is how we do business in Washington. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he, ha- he was a pi- pioneer in just essentially the normalization of corruption. And I think we really need to use that word. Um, yeah, yeah. It is corruption. It is a conflict of interest. Um, and as I write in my piece, even if one can't show exactly, you know, where his, you know, that he was kind of shading his policy advice for the benefit of his foreign government and multinational corporate clients, um, the point is, we shouldn't have to wonder, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we would want to ultimately want to avoid the appearance of a conflict. And he absolutely dove right into that. Um, and I think where this gets at the deeper problem in our democracy is that you know, part of the kind of fertile soil of authoritarianism deals with, you know, this idea that you can believe nothing, that everyone is lying to you, that nothing is on the level. And that is part of Kissinger's legacy. I mean, it's, you know, I, I really, I wrote earlier that he did more damage to our democracy than Trump. Um, and I think that's part of what I mean is that he played a huge role in creating or in laying the groundwork. Mm-hmm. um for this this kind of kind of conspiratorial because it turns out sometimes the conspiracies are there. It turns out that sometimes we do secretly knock over democratically elected governments um so even when you know the u s government tries to do the right thing, there's always going to be you know some some element that's saying, well, what's really going on here because they have real examples of that in the past
0: yeah no i I think that's absolutely right and i I mean it gets at um the uh, issue of like, um, you know, where does the erosion of trust come from? Because I think mm-hmm. there is a kind of you know mainstream discourse that sort of you know points to social media and other things mm-hmm. that are you know like very dubious and need to yeah. be challenged. But right. like if you actually look at uh, you know we have good social science on this in terms of public opinion and trust of government. Like yeah. the real um, initial crisis of uh, trust in the government. Uh, came um, in the sort of 60s and early 70s with the Vietnam War and then with Watergate, you know, which uh, Kissinger is uh, associated with both. Um, uh, And, you know, like prior to that, like, you know, Americans had a great deal of trust in their public institutions. And then for very good reasons, they started not to. Um, And there's a a a revival of public trust, like initially after 9-11. And then what happened? Right.
1: Right. No, I always think back to the, you know, you had that, like, that whole run of kind of conspiracy movies in the mid, late 70s, like Parallax View, Mm. like Three Days of the Condor. Mm -hmm. um, A number of others, I think, that reflect what you're saying, that moment. and like The the
0: conversation. The
1: uh, the conversation, right. But I I, I always think there's this scene, like the end, (laughs) the big reveal at the end of Three Days um, of the Condor, which is a fantastic movie by the Mm -hmm. Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, um, where he finds out that the CIA was all doing it for the oil. (laughs) <laughs> you know which like it's like really you know when i watched that in like the, the early 90s i was like yeah everyone knows this now this is this is not, this is not a shock
0: yeah yeah i yeah. know it was a shock in the 70s yeah, yeah. Um uh, so but uh let's uh, turn from kissinger to um you know the current uh situation in um uh, Israel and Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so I, as I mentioned, you have this piece in Foreign Affairs, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, um, and I would encourage everyone to like read it um, because I think it brings out a very crucial thing, um, which is that you know we're um, currently uh, in the last week or so had uh, a respite from some of the um, the carnage. There's still violence going on. Um, uh, including mm. in the West Bank, but yeah. uh, it, it's at a, a lower level. There's a kind of touch and go ceasefire, um, which is you know running from day to day. Uh, the but I think that the larger point um, that I got from the piece is that you know there are ways in which um, the ceasefire can offer a model yeah. to, to move on to build something. Um, you know, like to, to go well, it's not even a ceasefire; it's a humanitarian pause. But to build from the humanitarian yes. pause a longer ceasefire yeah. and then to build from the ceasefire to like um what is actually needed which is a return to negotiations right. um on the status of the palestinians um so one way uh to uh well l- l- let's think about this uh, first as sort of a set of policy prescriptions, then we can talk about what how plausible this is like mm. first of all like so so w- what are you kind of envisioning as a kind of like you know like a best case scenario like if you had your ideal secretary of state mm. and uh, 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 team in place like like what do you think that uh, uh, they should be pushing for
1: well, one, as we say, extend the ceasefire mm. um continue you know hopefully to lead into something that is that is longer term, I mean, to continue negotiations for the release of more hostages and the release of more Palestinian prisoners. Um, Ultimately dealing with the challenge of Hamas rule in Gaza is a very real one. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think there's a lot of talk and and, and Secretary Blinken a few weeks ago in Tokyo laid out a set of principles um, that the administration has for post-war Gaza, um, one of which were there should be no return to the October 6th status quo. Um, which is both good, but also like for anyone who's seen the images coming out of Northern Gaza, there will be, I mean, the status quo is gone. There is mm-hmm. no reality in which we would ever return to that because Northern Gaza is rubble,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, close to, I think it's 1.8 million now displaced, fleeing into Southern Gaza. Um, but still taking that. Um, so what does that mean? They, I think they mean that, you know, we cannot have um, Hamas ruling Gaza anymore, but I also was encouraged to say that there cannot be a continuation of the blockade, the mm-hmm. siege on Gaza, which is 15 years old, which has been a constant um, part of this this this, this situation, um, which essentially is a, you know punishing civilians um, for for the the, the authoritarian, autocratic, um, extremist group that rules them. Um, but I think taking so, I think there's ways we can work with that and think through. Okay not just no return to the status quo for Gaza, but we have to have no return to the status quo for Palestine, Gaza, mm-hmm. the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And that requires shifting you know, to an actual process that creates a horizon to end the occupation um, and for real Palestinian liberation. And this will require a real shift in policy from this administration. But if we're talking in ideal terms, it, it requires a recognition that you will not just kind of put this issue in the corner. I mean, it's, I'm not going to pretend, nor does the peace pretend, that this will be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big challenges is, as I said, Hamas in Gaza. I think the goal of eradicating Hamas is not feasible. I think people mm-hmm. understand that. I think you can disempower Hamas. You can there, you know, You can take steps so they do not continue to rule there. It is complicated. It will require, and again, this is not something the United States can do because um, we have neither the right nor the ability to choose who who speaks for the Palestinians, or who, who But what we can do is support a process that helps end the division between you know the, the Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem um, that facilitates and supports a democratic process where the Palestinian national movement can be reconstituted, such that you have a Palestinian leadership. That can make credible commitments on behalf of the Palestinian people in a final agreement, mm-hmm. and that's ultimately what we're talking about here.
0: Okay, now, um, in terms of um, uh, you know trying to work with the Palestinians as a unified group, mm-hmm. um, one thing is like you know that has not been the. Um, uh, goal of the Israeli government, uh, certainly mm-hmm. recently, but I mean, like, arguably, like ever, like there has been, you know, like a mm-hmm. kind of divide in rule uh, strategy, um, going back decades. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah that's sounds- how
1: Hamas came uh, into being.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So the um, I mean, have, uh, for listeners who maybe are not familiar with the history, but like in the 80s, um, the uh, Israeli government sort of bolstered Hamas. Uh, As a way of undermining what they saw as the you know more dangerous secular
2: leadership. So let me
1: yeah this goes back to the seventies. Yeah yeah. And it was originally because Hamas grew out of the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So it began in Gaza. It was and again at this time they were not militant. They were largely not political. Although there is an element of of course politics in the Muslim Brotherhood's program. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a lot of essentially you know support relief and missionary work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know this is a model the Muslim Brotherhood has followed you know kind of a lot of you know groups around the world in the in the Middle East mm-hmm. and elsewhere have followed a similar model to develop support among the population in the face of an administrative state that is you know that is I, either ignores them or or preys upon them mm-hmm. and that's the situation that you had uh, in the occupied territories um, but the the occupation the Israeli occupation authorities kind of allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to grow because they saw it as as a useful way to divert support Mm -hmm. from the secular nationalist uh, Fatah and the PLO. Yeah. So yes, and as you said, in the 80s, around the first intifada is when Hamas was created as, you know, out of the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood, as an explicitly militant organization.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, even as it became a more militant organization, like even in the 80s, it was seen as a more... um, uh, we're supporting as part of a kind of divide and rule strategy. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I mean, I, I what we're basically calling on, uh, then, um, is for like Israel to, um, you know, forswear divide and rule mm-hmm. and to like try to, um, uh, uh, you know, forswear. I mean, like what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, the current leader, I mean, his explicit uh goal as he's recently stated was like i'm the i'm the you need me i'm the one who can stop palestinian statehood mm-hmm. right like uh, right. so 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 um i you know at its core um uh this is a policy that would like you know involve um the united states uh you know like openly coming into conflict yes. with a uh, right. netanyahu's government let, let's say at a minimum right right uh, perhaps like um uh, uh, also, political forces larger than Netanyahu, but at yes. a minimum, uh, him. So, right. so I, um, uh, so I, I think just just uh, acknowledging that, um, what are some of the frameworks that one could have? Like, if let's say, you know, like ideally, one has an Israeli government that that, that um, ag- agrees to the, these certain negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in your piece, I mean, like it, you kind of suggest at least two major sort of pathways. Uh, and I think it's worth kind of fleshing out uh, mm-hmm. what those are.
1: Right. I mean, so first we, you know, we you know suggest bringing together um, what we call kind of the, the Aqaba group plus um, uh, Qatar and Turkey. And so the Aqaba group were a set of, of regional governments that met uh, in the context of the Abraham Accords um, mm-hmm. to talk about regional cooperation, normalization. Now, I mean, I think there's an element of that that is important, although. We really do advocate moving away from the Abraham Accords as a basis, mm-hmm. because I mean, people who say that well, we could pro- we can use the Abraham Accords as a way to address the Palestinian issue, I think fundamentally un- misunderstand <laughs> what the Abraham Accords mm-hmm. are for, and they are for in part burying the Palestinian issue. So yeah. I mean, it is you. I, I don't think you will use this tool for the opposite purpose for which it was created. However, I think just as a way of, of gathering some of the, the, the regional players, um, but adding Qatar and Turkey, both of whom have channels to Hamas. Um, and again, the U.S. can facilitate this um, and can play a really important role. But part of the recognition here is that the U.S. You know, just cannot play the, the hegemon here. I mean, our, mm-hmm. our credibility after this was already low, but after the past two months of this, this massacre is extraordinarily low. Um, but we do remain, and we note this, the only country that has the relationship with Israel and can ultimately give Israel the security guarantees it will require uh, to make an agreement. Um, the second piece... Uh, can, of, I,
0: can I actually, actually just want to yeah. hit on that point a little bit? Because mm-hmm. I actually had a sort of curi- um, thought about this. I mean, you, I, I think the point that you raise about like American uh, America's lack of credibility here mm-hmm. is kind of key. And I'm wondering whether the kind of model that we saw um, with China um, uh, coming in and um, uh, setting up negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Mm. um, like uh, which it was able to do because it doesn't have the kind of baggage that the United States uh, did. Um, uh, Is there some sort of uh, role that some like, you know, not necessarily even this doesn't have to be even like China, but like, you know, some sort of um, 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 other external, A power that has maybe less uh, baggage in the scene as a more uh, even-handed. Like, is is there some role for that?
1: Well, I mean, I first of all, I have a different interpretation of the role that China actually played Mm -hmm. in that you know detente uh, between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. I think that had been developing and in the works for some time. I Mm -hmm. mean, there had been meetings going that were many of them, interestingly, kind of held and brokered in Iraq. Um, between Iran and Saudi Arabia Um, China as I understand it was kind of brought in toward the end Mm -hmm. Um, not entirely for PR purposes but largely for PR purposes because this was a play by MBS to bid up the United States Mm -hmm. and it worked fantastically you know I mean the news broke here you have you know you have China and they're you know doing the you know yay China's playing this role which you know again I think it's good I want you know easier, less tense relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think everyone should. Um, But that was, you know, the audience for that was Joe Biden to say, like, listen, we have other options. And again, this is a familiar play. We saw this throughout the Cold War where authoritarian leaders is like, well, we could take a deal over here with the Soviet Union or what are you going to offer us? (laughs) And of course, the Biden administration has so, you know, showed immediately we want to offer you everything. We mm-hmm. want to offer you a civilian nuclear program. We want to mm-hmm. offer you um, a defense. Ag- I mean, this was, you know, what came to be called the so-called Israel-Saudi normalization deal, mm-hmm. um, which I've, I've noted it was actually just a U.S.-Saudi defense pact mm-hmm. that was kind of wrapped in a, in, a, in a sweet candy coating of peace with Israel in order to try and sell it um, domestically here in the U.S. Um, I think that's been put off for the time being. Yeah, but I think yeah. those the imperatives that underlie that still it still exist. Um, but to your point, yeah, I think ultimately you do want to bring in other players, as, as tough as that will be, but particularly Iran. Now, I'm not saying Iran needs to be at the table, but that's again why we would, we would want to add Turkey and Qatar to this round is because they both have channels to both Hamas and to Iran. And you will not ice Iran out of the region. And again, that's not to, to defend or have any sympathy for what the Iranian regime does. It does a lot of horrible stuff to its own people and to others, um, but it is a player in the region. Um, so, I mean, finding a way, you know, to, to get Iran's buy-in um, mm-hmm. to a process is really important. And ultimately, listen, that could be a way into a broader, you know, negotiation with Iran, um, between Iran and the United States. I'm not super yeah. optimistic about that, but just kind of making the point that, you, you know, you're not going to have a successful process that just ices Iran out. Mm-hmm
0: yeah 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 oh okay so so i mean i mean uh basically uh what you're suggesting is that um, instead of using the abraham accords as a way of like um shutting people out and creating a defense pact mm-hmm. uh, you know like uh us against these other guys yeah but about to using it uh, uh using yeah. some of the existing networks there but to bring more people in yeah um uh yeah, I, 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 I think that 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 makes sense. Uh, although I, I will again note that that goes against a lot of the um sort of bipartisan foreign policy consensus yeah. uh, that, that right. we've seen. Uh, no, you know, no. Um, uh, at least since like you know, like you mentioned the Abraham Accords, you know, which like Biden took up on his own. So,
1: um, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll just stop here and say, I mean, let's look at. Yes, I would agree that this cuts against you know the the so called bipartisan consensus, but. How's that going? <laughs> yeah, you
0: know, yeah no, 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 I agree. Yeah, yeah.
1: How's that consensus working out?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, you yeah, know. No. But but j- just to know, like, like we we'll need to get like some yeah. very powerful right. people rethinking right. uh I I will also say, I mean, like, you know, one saw glimmers of this um, you know, like under Obama. Like I think, you know, there were ways in which um uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, prior to the sort of, you know, Trump and the Abraham yeah. Accords, you, there, there were ways in which, like, the Obama administration was, like, heading in this direction of trying to, right. you know, like, uh, bring in no. more, more people to the table. Totally so, agree. So, I mean, so, again, so, this so, is so part so there, of what underlines... There's there some basis for this, like, right. within the establishment.
1: And again, you are, you're right. And to some extent, I am, like, imagining a can opener, mm-hmm. right, in terms of, like, <laughs> let's imagine we have a president who wants to do this and is willing to put... You know, his or her political weight behind making the case for why this is the right path. I mean, as Obama did with the JCPOA to say, listen, Mm. we, you know, this is a good agreement. It's not perfect. It, it puts a cap on Iran's nuclear program and it creates the possibility of you know further negotiations, or at least bringing some stability to a relationship that has been very antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, this does you know Joe Biden's career long you know approach to the U.S. Israel relationship has been no daylight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I would argue that what we are seeing in Gaza right now is in part the result of no daylight. What we are yeah. seeing in the West Bank, you know, essentially you know just militia attacks against Palestinian civilians, which are constant. Um, kind of a form of ethnic cleansing that is taking place. Um, This is in part the result of not just Biden, but decades of U.S. policy in which there are zero consequences uh, for these things. Mm -hmm. And I think what we are proposing is this crazy idea that there should be consequences for both sides. I mean, we have, the U.S. has kind of dominated a process um, over the years in which there are consequences for only one side, the weaker Mm -hmm. side. The side that is under occupation, um, and that has manifestly failed uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to you know, it is is pointed us away from peace.
0: Yeah, no, no, I don't I, I, I think that's um, uh, a good way of sort of like getting at the basic premise of your uh, the piece, which is um, the status quo has failed, and mm-hmm. uh, um, it is a bipartisan status quo as yeah. um, a status quo based on sort of sidelining the Palestinian issue, yeah. right. um, and we are seeing, you know on the positive side like you know like even joe biden has kind of you know talking about the two state solution again so so there's some you know glimmer of awareness uh, that this is uh this is uh um uh, uh this is something that has to be uh, addressed right. um so you know having said all that i mean like I, so so there's a kind of um uh diplomatic basis or model for this like you know going back to Obama. Um, as to how this could be done. Uh, and I think that there are people, you know, one sees us from the dissents that are coming within the state department, there are people in the government that kind yes. of realize, um, the current policy, um, has all the flaws that you've indicated. Yeah. Um, I, I think the real question then goes back to the president. I mean, like, you know, this is one power that the president actually has of setting the foreign policy yeah. agenda. And, and this is the question I would kind of like ask for you. Like, I could conceivably imagine an an American president um, and it doesn't even have to be like a Democrat. Like I could imagine, you know, like a Bush senior uh, in certain circumstances, like, you know, following the kind of path that you've um, uh, outlined. Can I imagine Joe Biden doing that? Mm. I mean, this is what I would ask you. Like, can we imagine um, uh, Joe Biden taking um, uh, the path of realizing that like no daylight has not worked? Um, uh, is a disaster yeah. and that that is the sort of, you know, like a stumbling block that you have to um, push out of the way yeah. in order to get to a better place.
1: Yeah. Um, it's difficult to imagine uh, Joe Biden reversing um, or moving away from some of his kind of longstanding, I think, ideological, um, you know, commitments when it comes to Israel. And I do use the word ideological advisedly because I do think, you know, his, his approach is, I think, much more ideological than people appreciate, um, but again, the approach that that Nancy and I took, and this goes to the approach that we are taking at CIP. I mean, I moved over there just a few months ago. She's been the president since uh, January 2022, and you know, we are working together to build a new team and to build CIP into, you know, a, a, you know, a much more energetic voice for progressive foreign policy. But what we really wanted to do in this piece was say, this is like the right policy. You know, this is the approach that the United States should take that could actually address this and promote real stability, promote real security and real dignity for people in the United States and for the region. Um, Now, I understand other people can write pieces that are like, well, given the constraints that exist and given what we know Joe Biden will and will not do, here's what we can do. And I respect that. That's approach Mm -hmm. they can take. Um, But, you know, what we really wanted to do here was just say, listen, we we need a shift. We are not going to nib. If we want to, really address this problem such that we don't come back to war in Gaza in another three, five years, we will not succeed by simply nibbling around the edges. Um, Mm -hmm. We will not succeed simply by focusing on Gaza. We need need to really confront and address this problem uh, as a whole.
0: Yeah, no, no. I I think that's fair. And I think maybe uh, uh, on that point, uh, I mean, like Biden, obviously, you know, as president, has a huge amount of say in mm-hmm. setting the agenda. Uh, but um, I think it's worth noting, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, there is a sort of divisions, uh, particularly in the Democratic coalition on this, uh, and divisions within the government itself. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think we've seen right. um, sort of like extraordinary amount yes. of internal dissent, right. uh, you know, coming from within the dissent channels within the State Department. Uh, but also like even uh, staffers in the white house uh and in congress yes um and uh and within like the you know democrats in congress uh where i think the number of people you know calling for a ceasefire continues to kind of grow uh and uh, and certainly in the polling you know like um um uh you know biden's uh policy doesn't seem to be where like uh democratic voters are and particularly where Democratic voters are increasingly are like, like, the, yeah. you know, support for the, the war uh, right. is has, uh, and uh, a sort of uh, blank check policy for Israel, like is declining. Right. Um, so and has uh, been
1: declining for some time. I mean, this yeah. the, the polls have been showing this trend for, for a long time.
0: Yeah, 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 and and it's partially generational, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's very clearly, um, you know, like the sort of younger members uh, of the Democratic coalition are, are uh, have really shifted on this. So, um, so this to me, I mean, like, the, the, you have a set of sort of policy prescriptions, um, but I, I think the I think for me the question is like, can those policy prescriptions uh, be joined with like a, you know a genuine mass movement? Like, I think we yeah. we are we're actually seeing. Uh, I I think it's something I wasn't expecting, but like a remarkable degree of like organizing and mass protest against this policy. Uh, You know, anyone who's followed this for a long time, like um, will know, like it's always been like a sort of uh, uphill battle in American politics. And that seems to have shifted. Like there is actually like a kind of momentum. Yeah, um, it's clearly uh, shifted and um, it's been uh, shifting for a long time. um, so so, so uh, yeah, you know I won't way... say I'm
1: completely surprised. I mean I do I, I am impressed with the um, you know the, the organizing work that had, that has been done by, by a lot of groups. But you know, when I see these dissents from huge numbers of you know um, state department um, you know officials and from members of you know staff, congressional staff, I mean I know a lot of these folks. I mean these, mm-hmm. as you said, I mean, we've seen this shifting, within the Democratic Party as a whole. And that's represented in people who who are working for this administration. Mm -hmm. Um, This president and and a lot of the party leadership are simply out of touch with where the party is um, when it comes to Israel-Palestine. And again, I'm not going to, and I absolutely reject the characterization of this as being somehow hostile to Israel. Um, it is just a sense that, listen, the United States needs to take an even-handed approach here. We have two peoples, um, who both of whom deserve rights and security. And U.S. policy has overwhelmingly focused on the rights and security of one of these two groups. Um, mm-hmm. And that needs to change. I mean, the other point I'd add here, and I think this is particularly um, relevant, because, you know, I'm a foreign policy person, I, I, I would love it if foreign policy played a bigger role in our elections and everything like that. But I realize you know, it's very rarely a top of mind issue um, for voters when they go to, to, to the polls. But this issue, um, the issue of Palestinian rights, ending the occupation, is one that really kind of connects to a broader set of kind of progressive values and principles. Um, it's seen as an issue of social and racial justice, Um, We saw this as part, you know, there's an element of this that connects to the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests that came up uh, in in, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, going back to um, the the protests after Mike Brown. Um, We saw, you know, conversations going on between activists in Palestine and the United States around this. um, And I think that's part of it as well. Um, You know, so the question is, will this matter uh, next year on Election Day? And again, I don't want to overstate the impact of any foreign policy issue, especially yeah. year out. But the outrage that I am seeing, and I think that we're seeing in the polls as well, is really off the charts. Yeah, um, yeah. it really is. And, you know, will will these younger voters or, or these, you know, the people who are expressing these views, will they vote for Trump? Perhaps not. They may choose not to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I, I think they will almost certainly not get out the vote. They will not phone mm-hmm. bank. They will not knock on doors. They will not do the important work that is, you know, I think will be necessary uh, for a Biden reelection. And, you know, if we're talking about a few hundred thousand votes in a few key states, which is, I, I think, almost certainly what this election will come down to, given how, how, how tightly polarized
2: mm-hmm.
1: we are, this could matter. Yeah, and no, I, think, no. I think the White House needs to be thinking very, very seriously about that.
0: No, absolutely, yeah, yeah, no, I know. So I, I mean, I, I, I think it is uh, one of the rare cases where um, uh, public opinion can change it, uh, um, uh, get involved with foreign policy and ch- uh, change it. Um, and I think it actually offers an interesting opportunity um, for people who are involved with foreign policy to, like, you know, engage the public in a way that I think you know most foreign policy decisions don't. Uh, but I mean, like one point, you know, uh, possible model. Although I know it's, it's uh, in some circles considered a a controversial point of comparison, but there was, um, you know, a huge uh, um, uh, political consensus uh, supporting um, apartheid South Africa in the Mm -hmm. United States for many Mm -hmm. decades, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 50s, 60s, and it started to change in the 70s, partially because the issue resonated uh, with um, American domestic struggles on race. Uh, And, uh, you know, there was a, a mass movement that was really able to, like, bring this issue to the uh, um, fore and challenge the sort of, you know, uh, what what, what we could call the Kissinger uh, (laughs) consensus view on apartheid uh, to to do a little callback. Uh, And uh, so, so, I mean, there are ways, there are examples. um, uh, Yeah, I would
1: just uh, note here, I mean, that's exactly right, which is part of why, you know, the Israeli government for, for years has been anticipating that and working very diligently Mm -hmm. Um, in the United States and elsewhere to kind of, you know, to conflate criticism with Israel with Mm anti-Semitism. I mean, that's just the fact, unfortunately. I mean, we see a really unprecedented, I mean, you know, the fact, you know, just look at, you know, kind of anti-BDS measures being written into state law. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if South Africa were, were doing something like that, you know, if, you know, no criticizing apartheid, you have to sign this pledge that you won't criticize South Africa. Or or sign on to boycotts of, of apartheid if you want to get this state job, um, so yeah, I I think the model I think you know the Israeli government the right wing you know the right wingers in Israel have been very conscious of that of that that as well.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean to some degree, you know, the sort of uh, political repression and uh, uh, you know censorship. Um, that can work to some degree but i mean i actually do think that america uh you know right now is um such a pluralist society and there are enough kind of like you know norms of liberal democracy uh that i actually don't see that strategy um uh like succeeding in the long run like i think it could slow things down yeah. a lot right. uh which is bad cuz that means more suffering uh but um yeah yeah so mm. so so um I'm glad to have had this conversation because I, I do think that, like you know, just looking at the news in um, uh, Gaza and the West Bank uh, and in the region as a whole, like it's easy to sort of give in to despair. Uh, but I was very grateful for your article um, um, as a, you know, offering a model uh, for like more constructive thinking and also like you know, like thinking politically in a way that you know we can actually get to you know the place that we want
2: to be.
1: Right. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you.